on the podcast is Rory O'Neill. Rory O'Neill grew up in Ballinrobe, a small town in rural Mayo, where his father worked as a vet. Today he is better known to people all over the world as Panty Bliss, Ireland's most famous drag queen and self-proclaimed accidental activist, after his pivotal role in the campaign for equal marriage in 2015. Rory joined me in London ahead of the screening of his film Queen of Ireland at the British Museum to mark the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the Free and Equal Campaign, to discuss becoming Panty Bliss and the Ireland he says he is proud to live in today. Rory O'Neill, welcome to the London Calling podcast. Thanks very much for, for coming in and joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me, Ryan, even though you're from Cork. <laughs> I, I deserve that, I guess. Um, you have a screening coming up tonight. That's why you're in London. It's yes. the, um, it is the to coincide with the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and it's your film, uh, Queen of Ireland, which is three years old next month. Is it? That's correct, yeah. Oh, yeah, October. it was October, I remember that, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a funny one because um, it's the UN things and there are these screenings and um, I, we've done a good few already around European capitals. Yeah. Um, and this, that sounds very fancy, doesn't it? UN screenings of your movie, whatever. It's not quite as fancy as it sounds. Um, but uh, um, it's weird that it's three years, the movie came out, it did its thing, and I thought... It would have all ended then. Yeah. But it keeps getting used for things like this. So there are these UN screenings all this year. And basically they use it as an excuse to, uh, A, remind people that actually the gays are also included in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Mm-hmm. And also to sort of have discussions about in each of the countries about where are they in terms of gay rights now and all that sort of stuff. And then other people use it too. I'm always getting invited to like funny festivals or... Um, Things where they're using it either to talk about, um, you know, gay rights issues or human rights issues, or to talk about Ireland, weirdly. Mm. And sometimes the Department of Foreign Affairs sends me around with it, and it's it's a shorthand way of reminding foreigners or letting foreigners know that Ireland is actually not the country that they think it is, yeah. but that they've learned from the movies or whatever, you know, nineteen fifties bishops beating you over the head with a stick or whatever. Those <laughs> and it's sort of a quick and shorthand, easy way to say, look. We're And how have you felt about um, the way the film has been received since it was released? Like, are you proud of of what it's what it's done for some people? Yeah, because I get a lot of letters still about or emails. It's it's very easy to write to me because you can find the address at the bar, no problem. And uh, and then my email, you know, my sort of public email address is is easy to find. Um, So people really do write to me, and it's amazing because then I I sort of forget about the movie, whatever, and then it'll be um, maybe. It'll be on television, say, in some other place, or it'll suddenly be on some streaming service in some other country or something, and then I'll get a flood of letters. Mm. Um, 
just from people of, you know, that, and I'm amazed at how people in, who have no connection to Ireland and, you know, my, a housewife in Texas or something, and, and, and for some reason they were motivated to then write to me about it. The, the most amazing part was when it was here. In London. It, well, but yeah, when it, it was, it, it did like to have some art house, you know, rele uh, release here. Um, but then also, you know, when it became available to screen and that, on whatever iTunes and all that, um, a lot of older gay Irish men hmm. wrote to my parents. Really? In Mayo? Yeah. Uh, like people who, guys who left Ireland maybe back in the 70s or 80s hmm. and who left Ireland because they never thought that they would be able to be, you know, to have a life in a home in Ireland because they never thought that they could be, you know, themselves there and um, the Ireland of the time or whatever. Yes. And, and often people who never got, either never came out to their parents um, or maybe they didn't and it, was, and it never didn't go very well or whatever. Mm. And now maybe the, their parents might have passed away or something and they haven't had the chance to, you know, to get beyond all that or to have the conversation that they needed to have. It's too late. Yeah. And they kind of write, they, they wrote, a, you know, a number of them wrote to my parents after seeing the movie as sort of surrogates for their own parents. Oh, and what were your parents? And, and my mother, you know, she's like, you know, all like thank you cards and yeah. you know all that stuff. So you know, she wrote back to them all. To all of them. Mm. Oh. And what was your dad's reaction to getting all this mail of? Well, my dad wouldn't, love. you know, <laughs> I never even really spoke to him about. It. Um, he's a very typical, you know, um, great guy. Yeah. Um, but uh, he wouldn't talk about that kind of thing so much. Um, mm. You'd have to corner him about that. Whereas my mum would tell me all about it. Yeah. And um, as mentioned, Mayo is where you're originally from. Ballinrobe uh, is the is a small country town. Well done on not saying Ballinrobe, which is what people usually do. Really, so, mispronounce yeah, it. Forget so, the B. Oh, you're from Ballinrobe, is it? I think they're mixing it up with other towns or something. Maybe. Um, what was your childhood like there? Um, in great. That, in that area of Ireland? Oh, you should read my book. Um, <laughs> it's great. No, I had a great childhood. Um, you know. Um, I used to think you know, when I was younger that I, oh, it would have been good to grow up in the city, but actually, you know, of course, no. It's much better to grow up in the country, certainly until you're a teenager or something. Yeah. You can, you know, we were, it's probably not the same now, but certainly we were able to run around outside. My mother didn't know where we were or care, really. Well, she'd hate if I heard me say that, but you know what I mean? She didn't worry that we were, something terrible was going to happen. Um, so I just feel like we were constantly outside and doing our own thing and, you know, climbing across the river and mm -hmm. whatever. Um, I don't think kids even in Mayo have that much freedom anymore, but um, yes, yeah, brilliant place to grow up. And we were right on the edge of the city, of the city, right on the edge of the town. So there was like fields and a river behind us, and there was like you know a wood not far away, and we build things in there. And you know, my dad was a vet, so there was yeah. lots of animals, and you know, and everybody had big families, so there was lots of kids running around, and yeah, it was pretty idyllic, really. And it's not far from. For example, Knock Shrine, and it's you know it's a Catholic kind of area. Did you have a Catholic upbringing then? In that Catholic, case? every area is Catholic. Um, um, oh God, yeah, you know my parents are devout. Yeah. Um, now, in saying that, they've kind of changed, like so many people. Um, but you know, I was, you know, an altar boy. My mother was a minister of the Eucharist and cleaned the church, and you know, um, my parents, you know, they're they don't get around as well as they used to, but they. Um, if they could, they would still be going to mass every day. Mm. Then that's, you know, they did that for a long time. Um, 
So yeah, absolutely. Now, when everything happened, you know, with the scandals in the church and all sorts, um, and I think having two gay sons yeah. also helped. Um, my mother and her sort of old mate now, they would sort of say, you kind of giggle and act like schoolgirls and say that they have their own denomination now. <laughs> in other words, what they do is um, they're kind of over the hierarchy. Mm. They don't care anymore what a bishop thinks or says and this kind of stuff. Um, like I always said that if you could be a married woman priest, my mother would be one. Okay. I mean, she's that kind of devout and, and she's very thinking. So she'd also like, she also has 20 books by her bed and half of them would be about theology or something. Okay. Like, um, Well-read woman. Yeah. And, um, but nowadays, yeah, she would sort of jokingly say that she has her own denomination. In other words, that she takes the framework Catholicism and it would describe herself as Catholic and does all the rituals mm. and all of that but she wouldn't be um, a stickler um, for she, everything church court? yes yeah. absolutely but she just wouldn't be uh, she wouldn't support um, mm. a, a lot of the decisions of the hierarchy and maybe when she was younger she would have just whatever they said she you know, went along with yeah. whereas now she wouldn't so she would agree, think that they're you know, teaching on I don't know Gays and sexuality, for example, is bullshit, and um, uh, and you know she's of an age where she doesn't really need to care about contraception, but I'm sure if she had to, she would use contraception. Mm. Um, you know that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I think you know the the hierarchy proved themselves over you know for, through all the scandals, everything, to not be some sort of conduit to God, right? So so she's just they just toss that aside, and so they listen to what they have to say, and then they'll make up their own. But there's a disconnect. Yeah. Um, I hope she would think that's a fair description of where they're at, but yeah, I think so. And you mentioned in the film as well that at some point growing up you started to feel different than other boys in the area. Mm. Was there a particular moment or um, occurrence that, that brought no, that No, I'd out? love to tell you like, it was a big cinematic moment and we could uh, you know, cast it. <laughs> but no, but you know, there was a general feeling of always being slightly the odd one. And, and in, in lots of ways I was a real cliche, because I should stress, there are plenty of gays who love football. Why? I don't know, but they do. Um, but I'm the cliche. I hated it. Mm. You know, I hated field sports. Um, and so, oh God, I always never wanted to go to football and hurl and all that. And, and I was also a mouthy, stroppy kind of kid. So I would say, I don't want to, I hate it. I don't want to do it. You know, and there'd be like a gasp of intake yeah. of breath in the class and the teacher would, you know, would spend the next 50 minutes trying to find out what the hell is wrong with me, you know? You were even theatrical back <laughs> yeah. then. Um, but yeah, and all that stuff. And I always felt outside of everything in that way. And, and that became more acute the older I got, that I just felt, mm, you know? Um, when yeah. you moved to London then, um, as you, obviously you're much older at this stage, and you went, you started clubbing and getting involved with drag, was yeah. that a transformative period? And it, it, was London the only place where you could have done that at that time in terms of, um, you know, leaving Ireland and getting out of that? Yeah, well, but I was only going to London in the summer, okay. really. Um, I, had a, I had an older brother yeah. who lived here at the time, and he was gay as well. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was coming here to do my student, student summers, you know, working in a restaurant in Covent Garden and all that. And then at night time, running around to every giant nightclub and you know, all this stuff. And, and you're um, like walking around and running a lot, don't you? Yeah, I do, yeah. <laughs> um, I would prefer to walk you know, for an hour than get on a, in a cab for five, yeah. even five minutes. Um, uh, yeah, but it's a very typical Irish gay story. Hmm. Go off to the nearest big city, you know, and at the time it was London, because um, we couldn't afford to fly before I yeah. there. Um, so you would get the boat. 
and the train to London. And um, like yeah, every Irish peer went to London. Mm. And like all of them, I was like, oh my God, A, there's all these gays. B, nobody knows me. Um, and C, give me it all. <laughs> you know, like I just had the best time ever. And you know, and at that time I would have thought that I would, you know, I could never want, I was not going to live in Ireland. Mm. I only want to live in the biggest, most exciting cities, you know. Um, but you know, I, I changed my mind about that slowly over time. Mm. And I've heard you say before as well that growing up, you didn't feel like you were part of the term Irishness. And yes. I was wondering because obviously that was a very different Ireland to the Ireland now, and you've mm. been a very important figure in shaping the Ireland that we currently have now in the last couple of years, especially. Um, what does Irishness mean to you now, and do you feel more, um, more? Yeah, I mean, close um, to it? when I when I generally this usually comes up when people refer to me as a gay rights activist, and I I always it I mean I I get that yeah. totally I I I have been, but. I always kind of feel like that, that that wasn't specifically my project, that my project was about Irishness mm. and that um, I always felt excluded when I was younger from Irishness because I didn't like GAA and I wasn't a huge U2 fan and, you know, all, all the stuff, yeah, yeah. all the yeah. things. And, and there was a sort of feeling that if you were queer and you were going to be running around nightclubs with glitter on your arse, well... That, that excluded you, that you weren't really Irish. And there was, I also felt like there was kind of suspicion about me. Mm. And I used to sort of feel that I was like, I, I used to identify with the Protestant community at home. Really? Because you know the way um, we, we would talk about them as West Brits, not Irish. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, you know, the ones in your know, Mrs. Blossom, and she'd have a posh accent for all that. And, um, and she was considered not really Irish, even though, as far as I know, she was born, born and raised there. Um, and and a lot of the in the and the Protestant community certainly around Ballon Road, you know, dwindled and dwindled and dwindled and dwindled, um, I, because I I guess younger people went off you know to other places or whatever. But um, I suspect probably lots of them went off because they were fed up, hmm. not you know that there the people in their locality treating them as if they weren't really local. Hmm. And I used to really identify with that because I felt queer people was the same, or certainly with the kind of queer person that I was, that people were always like, hmm. You know, yeah. Um, when you heard descriptions about Irish things or Irish people, none of them ever fit me, mm. and I was like, mm. "Would an outcast be a fair term then?" Or? You know, I, people weren't throwing me out, or, yeah. but, but they weren't including me. Okay. And and the things that the kind of person that I was, the things I was interested in, weren't included in Irishness. Yeah. And I think that's part of our history too. You know, uh, you know, our particular kind of history where, you know, we were trying to really define ourselves against Englishness or other factors, whatever. Mm. Um, and so for me, a lot of my project, if you want to say that, was about, you know, making the, the definition of Irishness more elastic mm-hmm. so that it would also, you know, stretch around someone like me. And, and, and lots of the things I did, even um, the Alternative Miss Ireland, which is this event we ran for 20 years or something, it was almost specifically about that. Well, it was specifically a fundraiser for HIV and AIDS charities, but the idea was sort of about that. Okay. It was, this is the Alternative Miss Ireland. I mean, you can you know, be a stupid drag queen or a girl covered in teddy bears or all the nutty stuff that would happen at the Old Herman's Island and you were still entirely Irish yeah. and that's why it was on around St. Patrick's Day and, you know, and we always kind of upped the, the, mm. the, the, the Irish joke and equality about it and, you know, the set would always be a Georgian house or a thatched cottage or, you know, like, yeah. um, and that was, all, that was all part of the same thing um, and not to sound too... <laughs> but, you know, in, in May 2015 in the referendum and all that, I sort of felt like the, it, it was a, an achieved project. Mm. 
because I did feel then, in May 2015, that finally the whole country had discussed it and said, actually, yes, yeah. you can be you and still be Irish. So the alternative Ireland became the normalised Ireland. I, I think so, to an extent, yeah. It felt kind of overnight, yeah. in a way. Or it felt like you, you got your certificate finally, or your, your citizenship or something. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, so that's what I mean about that. Mm. that um, yes, of course I was a gay rights activist, but in my head it was a slightly different thing. And since the, the uh, marriage equality referendum, has, have you noticed there being a, progress, a progression in people's kind of attitude towards that? on the back of the, the voter, or it, that it didn't just fade away and like, oh, we did that, great, you know? Because um, you need to keep these It's a mixture up. of both, really, isn't it? I mean, I think minorities will always have to slightly agitate because otherwise the majority kind of just forgets them or forgets they're there, sort of. Yeah. Um, so I think that will always be an ongoing project. And of course, there's the old usual adage about, you know, the hearts and minds are mm. slower to change. And so, of course, yes, you're going to find the odd idiot, and if you're on the internet, and your name is Panty Bliss, you're going to you meet them quite regularly. You can imagine. Um, but in general, I was actually very, I was taken aback at how fundamental the change was in many ways. Um, you know, before the referendum, I had sort of thought, well, you know, the day after, it'll, it'll, everything will be the same. Mm-hmm. Won't feel any different, nothing will be different, except gays can go to the registry office. Mm-hmm. That's how I thought it would be. But it actually was much more profound than that. And it's because we did it by referendum. Um, I wouldn't be recommending a referendum to other countries or anything it's, it's difficult and it's yeah. risky and it's not a nice process and all that but um but but having done it by referendum and getting the result you wanted was much more powerful um because in ireland for starters it feels like it's just a done conversation and even if you went and talked to you know david quinn of the iona institute who w- you would have been very vocally opposed even he would say yeah it's a done you know he, mm. he doesn't want to go over that argument yeah, it's finished because the whole country argued that for six whole months and then we all voted on it and it is done. Done and dusted. And now it's also, of course, part of the constitution. So in order to reverse it, you'd have to go and have another referendum. So it feels very secure and locked in. So Irish queers, I think, feel very secure now in their place Mm. in Irish society. Whereas if you go to France, who've had marriage equality for much longer, it is still a live issue there where there are marches in in the streets and protests and groups that are opposed to it and trying to... And if a very conservative government got in, they could just roll it back because they just brought it in by legislation. Hmm. And so it does not feel like a finished conversation in other parts of the world that have marriage equality because they didn't do it the way that we did it. Um, so, so I think that has had a you know, sort of a profound effect on the gay community at home where we feel very secure. Yeah. And also having had the big conversation, the nasty one, you know, and allowing people to say the worst things about gay people, and you know, you have to, you know, they're allowed for this during this argument period. Um, having said all that, sort of aired the worst dirty laundry and everything, and then coming to a decision, it feels like it's just been aired out, like a watershed moment. Kind of like, like, what more can you say? Yeah. If you're going to put up posters saying that you know we're a danger to children, yeah, and, and and still people are okay with you, then it feels like. It's fine. We're all done, sort of. And then more on a sort of more personal level, maybe, how that, you know, sort of obviously manifested itself is in the, in the thing about hold, people holding hands, which started immediately after the referendum. The, you know, that day, you see, you know, couples mm. walking around Dublin holding hands. And you still see that. I thought that would fade away in a week or two. 
But no, you do still see that. And, um, and I think that the reason for that is not that... Um, God, I'm repeating myself now because I've definitely said this you know, lots of to lots of people, but I, I always imagine that you know, if, if you're a young lesbian couple and you're slated at night and you're at a Lewis stop in Dublin, yeah. and maybe you naturally go to hold your girlfriend's hand or something, I think in the past you wouldn't have or you would have hesitated, but not because you thought someone was going to beat you up probably, because luckily Ireland is really like that, mm-hmm. well, rarely. Um, and, and not even that maybe somebody might shout, you know, your bloody dykes or something, because, you know, 17-year-old dykes are pretty tough and <laughs> whatever. Uh, they don't really care. But I think the real fear is that was that, you know, let's say some idiot did say something. The real fear was that the other people at the Lewis might agree with him. That well, you might be kind of alone and that everyone else is sort of thinking, yeah. That was the kind of the real fear, really. That's a terrifying fear. And, and now there's a kind of this... So it was 63%, and I think we all know that if we held it again today, it'd be higher, yeah. because all of the power you know, predictions of the no side didn't happen, and everything's... So I think a lot of people at the time, I thought, ooh, and just put no down for safety, who would now change that. Um, but it's, you know, it's so 63 on the day, percent on the day, and I think those young lesbians now, they sort of think, well, even if some asshole said something... Mm-hmm. They know, well, actually, asshole, 60, at least 63% of the people at this bus stop think you're the dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that is the very freeing or something. Just yeah. that knowledge that you're not alone and you wouldn't be alone at that you know, bus stop. Hmm. Um, you know, most of the people at the, at, the, at the stop would be on your side. And, and just knowing that is very liberating yeah that's a poignant change just mm. in people's day-to-day lives yeah um you described yourself as an accidental activist mm. um is activism still a big part in your life post the referendum yes because um uh well because there are other things that are i'm, I'm interested in changing and and people you know give me the opportunity to help do that whatever mm-hmm. um i i, I also said accidental activist because I always feel a little bit guilty when people say I'm an activist because, you know, I didn't join, you know, Amnesty and Greenpeace and dedicate decide I'm going to dedicate my life. Yeah. You know, I'm not Peter Thatcher here yeah. in London, you know, um, who, you know, has dedicated his whole life to this, um, and has been beaten up and all sorts of things because of it. Um, I my motives tended to be much more selfish generally mm-hmm. that. I'm going along trying to live my life the way that I'd like to live it and it will make me happiest and then something is in my way um, yes, or somebody is trying to stop me in some way or annoying me or about something and then so I'm, I want to change it mm-hmm. so I can continue on the path that I've chosen for myself and then and to do that I maybe have to activate if I can turn that into a verb and, um, and then just by extension it's also activating on behalf of people who are like me. Yeah. Um, so I just, I just feel like I don't deserve to be called an activist. But is there a pressure with that? Because a lot of people see you as a voice that they don't have, you know what I mean? So yeah, no, no, there's definitely, I feel that quite acutely sometimes. Um, and it's a very odd situation for, you know, a drag queen entertainer to be in because my, part of my job is to kind of not care so much about what I say, you know, to be a bit bigger yeah, than life and be a, you know, all that stuff. And, 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 you know, there's a lot, it's, you know, it's part of the job is being a comedian in a way. And so 
it's part of your job is to you know say these things but um but suddenly people and, and you know sorry I, I also spent about 30 years of my life trying to get people to take what i do seriously mm-hmm. because most people have a very low bar about drag i you know they saw some guy in a shitty bar in lanzarote once and they think all drag is that or whatever and so i used to really struggle to get people to take what i do seriously and you know then to to you know to come to a theater to see us but you know because they would think well i saw that guy in lanzarote why would i go to a theater you know um but now people sometimes take me way too seriously and i'll say some silly joke on twitter and people analyze every word and then they get very you know and i'm like Calm down, Mary. Yeah. You know, um, and that's so that's a kind of a weird one for me um, that I still struggle with sometimes. I try to not care so much and just be myself, and if people are going to get upset and not understand my sense of humor or whatever, well, whatever. Mm. Um, but no, I do, I'm, I'm, I am conscious of it, I can't not be conscious of it, and um, yeah. I wanted to ask you because with the 10 previous guests we've had, a big topic has been. Um, being Irish abroad and the experience of being Irish abroad and I think oh my of, god you're on Jarrett's territory I know I know I'm going to edit that bit out be careful um, but I think you've gone the furthest from home in terms of uh, all the people we've had previously because you went to Japan mm. um, what was the reason behind going to the opposite side of the world and what was the attraction um, you know it was so just uh, so mean in a way that I basically I was led astray mm-hmm. Um I was finished in college and um, I knew I was going somewhere. I had thought it was probably going, at the time everybody went to London or New York if they wanted to be, you know, could be illegal or something. Um, And I kind of vaguely thought it's probably going to be one of those. I mean, you know, um, in the same way that nowadays youth kids would be going to Sydney or Berlin. And, um, uh, but I hadn't really, you know, decided, wasn't it? And then my good friend Helen, Helen Wall from Ennistymon, County Clare, uh, the sister of the two Wall brothers, the Walls, the Stunning and all that. Oh, cool. um, she read a book about, by, um, obviously, Louis Theroux, oh God, um, Theroux, what, what's his name? Paul Theroux, the travel writer. And it was a book about train journeys in China. Hmm. And this was in the late 80s, 1990. So the USSR was still a thing, the Iron Curtain was still a thing, China was undeveloped and all that. But the book was just really interesting, and we thought, oh fuck it, let's go and try and do that. Um, and so we decided, oh, this is going to be sort of our big life adventure, and we were going to try and get tickets for the Trans-Siberian Express. And of co- but of course, the USSR was still a thing, so that was a huge adventure, just, and before the internet. Yeah. Like, if you didn't have the internet, how would you go about trying to get on a, illegally onto a train? You see, exactly, you like, you literally had to go around the world and listen to rumours. With a map. <laughs> yeah. We heard a rumour that if you went to Hungary, you could find, uh, and it was behind the Iron you could find a professor in a university who could get you a ticket for the Trans-Siberian Express. So we just went to Hungary. Looking for that. Yeah, it took like three weeks, but we found him. Like, there's, there's, you just had backpackers at the time who were the internet. Yeah. And every backpackers would say things. And, anyway, so... um. It took months, That's whatever, but we did, and so we got we got the Trans-Siberian with no visas, by the way. But we didn't know at the time. We were very lucky because uh, the USSR was beginning to crumble. Tiananmen Square had just happened. There was a lot going on. Timing so they did not care about two twenty-year-old Irish kids with bad homemade haircuts, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we just were just really lucky in retrospect. But uh, 
But we knew that we hoped the plan was to eventually get China, start doing the, the trains across China. Mm-hmm. And then we thought, well, well, then what? And at the time, Japan was having its Celtic tiger. Well, they were just the tiger. Mm-hmm. They were the tiger first, and then we got the Celtic one. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, every, you know, every backpacker would say, oh, in Japan, you can, you know, you step off the boat and people will give you money just because you speak English. And so, so we thought, right, well, so we got to Shanghai and then we got a boat to Japan. I knew nothing about Japan. I, I remember on the boat trying to learn how to count to 10. You know, we got some little book or something. And, and that is it. Like we arrived in Osaka and I had never even heard of the town. <laughs> like I didn't know anything. Yeah. They're like so ridiculous. Um, and then the plan was stay a year or something and try and earn some money and then continue our, hmm. but the, it just the continuing part didn't really happen. But you stayed so, there for five years? Yeah, right? yeah, there for five years. In Osaka for five years? No, no, I went straight to Tokyo once I found out Osaka wasn't Tokyo. <laughs> um, and I went to Tokyo and yeah, stayed there. Great. I'm not going to move to a country and then not live in the biggest city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How was that experience? Did you, did you... Oh, it was amazing. You know, I mean, I loved every minute of it. And I was, you know, at the age where everything is just, I'll do that, I'll do that, you know, yeah. and... Um, and it's where I started doing panty. Um, I'm part of a double act with an American queen, you know, and our shtick of yeah. USPs that we were foreign drag queens, you know, and then, um, you know, I had the gayest time in my life too. Danced um, on stage with Cindy Lauper. Oh, yes, yes, everybody always mentions the Cindy Lauper. Of course. Um, and yeah, just was an amazing time. Um, it was young, everything was exciting, it was in Tokyo. No homesickness like whatsoever. I have never been homesick a day in my life, which really? my mother, I know, you know, gnaws away at her inside. And because I went, to, I was sent away to school in County Mead um, and everything, and I would hear these other boys who were always upset or crying at some point about you know, homesickness, and I would just sort of look at them thinking, what is their problem? <laughs> I mean, you know, because um, obviously it, was, it had its own horribleness as a boarding school and all that stuff, but at the same time, I was like, well, I'm not in Mayo. <laughs> you know, and to me at the time, that was a step. Um, so, and you know, I've just never, I've always been really independent type, um, annoyingly so, I think. Um, and it was the same in Japan, and it was like totally cool. I remember, here's the stupid thing, that you're, you won't even understand this, but um, pre-internet, so when you were in Japan, you were like, there was no, it was the only way to communicate, I mean, you couldn't afford a phone call, I mean, at the time, a phone call to the side of the world, luxury. no, you'd have to go to the bank and get a loan for that, and so it was just letters, which took a long time, Jesus. but in Japan, everybody, because Japan was the future, yeah. and Japan, everybody, well, not everybody, a lot of people had a little miniature um, fax machine at home in their house. And I thought that was unbelievable. So I bought a little fax machine, but then I'm like, who the fuck do I know at home with a fax machine? So I had one friend who worked in an office with a fax machine. So I would like send him these long, you know, faxes with drawings and illustrations. No, but my family didn't have a fax machine. But for him to to deliver. (laughs) No, no, just just for his amusement. My parents still had to wait for the old school letter, yeah. Oh my God. And I miss fax machines, they were good. I had no experience with fax machines. They had this like good sound and then a picture would magically start coming out. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a, you know two photocopiers, you know connected <laughs> by some sort of internetwork. <laughs> <laughs> After five years in Japan, then obviously a completely different culture. Yeah. 
What made you come back to, to Ireland and when you came back, were you, did you notice a stark difference in society? Yeah, um, I came back for a couple of reasons. One is, five years is enough time to be anywhere, to, I think, and, um, and I was beginning to be, um, here's a, this is an odd one, I was beginning to be a little, Japan, when, when, you're, when you look like me and you step into a train carriage in, in Japan, mm. everybody looks up and, and in their mind they think, a foreigner. Yeah. And I started to tire of that, because I would meet these like people who had been there for 30 years, and, still. and they spoke perfect Japanese, and they, you know, everything, and they were still a foreigner. And that, I just started to think, can I always be a foreigner? Will I be happy enough with that? And it started to bother me a little. Um, not that people were mean or anything, you know, and, but it makes me think about like how a black person in, in Ireland must feel sometimes. Yeah. Um, and um, so there was that. Also, my two best friends, including the guy who I was doing the double act with, um, for their own reasons, were leaving in Japan. And, um, and also, I got hepatitis. And, and the doctor said, you know, what you really need to do is just rest for a while. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't do that in Japan. I wasn't going to have to work or whatever. So I thought, I'll talk to Mammy. Yeah, Mammy's. So I went home to Mammy and ate Mammy's food for like a month and did nothing. And, and then I thought I was going to go on. I thought Paris for some reason. I thought I was going to go to, um, but I went up to Dublin to just visit friends and that sort of stuff. But it was right at the beginning of the Celtic Tiger, mm. and you could just sense how things changed. When I left five years previously, you know, straight blokes in Dublin. Well, there's only straight blokes in Dublin. At the time. <laughs> they had you know still like slightly long rocker hair and like paisley shirt would be would be considered like a bit out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, they all had guitars, and that was it. Like it was just miserable, <laughs> and, um, and nobody had any work, and there was no jobs, and um, you know there was one restaurant in Temple Bar, and I worked in it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just it was just grim. Mm. But when I came back in '95, the city was physically changed. they were building the Lewis. Oh, okay. So you could, and there was and there was kind of new buildings going up, and. Um, the licensing laws had changed, and there were now real nightclubs. When I left, when, like when I was a student, no, we used to, you, um, everything was a restaurant. So pubs closed, and then there'd be these restaurants, and um, like Leeson Street, whatever. There were nightclubs, but they had to have tables and food and that. Give the earlier. Of it yeah, and, and, and they only had a restaurant license, which means they could only sell, only alcohol they could sell was like wine and wine-based drinks. <laughs> so, you, so you could have um, red wine, white wine, Campari, uh, I think that's Prosecco. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, there was. Well, I think wouldn't, we wouldn't have known what Prosecco was back in those days. There was, there was fizzy wine or champagne. Um, but, but so like you'd go to a nightclub when I was, you know, 20 in Dublin and people would be dancing around or whatever. And, and like the gay nightclubs were very underground and it was like the old school leather queens and stuff. And, and everything would be standing around with a glass of red wine. Like I used to go to this one and be like, like you know, two leather queens and Anne Doyle at the bar. Drinking <laughs> Campari. And guys in Paisley shirts yeah. with red wine. No, no, they wouldn't go to the gay clubs. Oh, okay. No, so. no, they were the straight guys. And it was miserable. When you came when I came back, there was nightclubs, there was the kitchen in Temple Bar, the pod had opened, this kind of thing. You had real nightclubs with proper dance floors and you know, proper full bar and all that. Yeah. Um the city was physically changing, you see things being built and all. And for the very first time ever, Irish young people were not leaving because they didn't have to. So they were like staying mm. after college. And for the very first time ever, you would meet foreigners. 
who were not just here looking for their Irish relatives, yeah. who were actually living here, you know, and you were like, what? You know, um, and that was just all new and exciting. And there was, it felt like there was possibilities. Mm. And, and I also felt just with the nightlife thing, you know, at that stage, the only way I knew to make a living was through drag and nightclubs and promoting parties and all that. I thought, oh, actually, I could actually do that here now, maybe. So I ended up staying, yeah. And you opened Panty Bar, which is... Oh, no, I didn't open Panty Bar for many 2007, years. 2007, right? 2007, so a good, whatever, 12 years after. After that. Oh, God, it felt really long. Only 12 years after that. 11 years. It's 11 years. We're, we'll be 11 next month. You know, What's it been like to have, to have a home for, for what it is that you do and who you are in, in Dublin? Yeah, what's been interesting, it has been 11 years, so it's changed a lot. Um, we opened six months before the crash. So the first five years were so difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, we lost half of our customers overnight. All the young ones like you just left. Um, and everybody else was just so careful with their money and everything. Um, now, we've managed to survive by the skin of our teeth. Like twice the sheriff came to the door to, going to take away equipment for, all, for the tax money that they owed him. Um, but anyway, we managed to just scrape by. And then by the time things started to pick up, we were so lean. Mm. Like there wasn't a single wasted penny in that place. Um, so that was all good. And so then it became easier. And then for a good, so 11 years, I guess for the six of them or something, you know, I was really a presence. Panty was there all the time and doing the shows and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and that is hard. And especially when you're my age, <laughs> you know, um, but thankfully it's, it sort of has established itself well enough and it has the same manager the whole time and he's amazing. And um, you have other drag queens putting on shows there as well as Yeah, right? kind of, but actually it's become less of a show bar in the last few years because it's just so, it has found its own, it's its own thing. Okay. Um, and yes, we do have other drag But it's a nice for you to give other people opportunities then to, you know, come and, and be able to express themselves and, and you, be embraced for who they are. Yes, no, absolutely. The one that was giving him that kind of um, um, it was, platform. You know, I think lots of drag queens would sort of envisage you know, having their own space and yeah. their own, and making all the decisions themselves and all that stuff. Uh, it's really hard work and... Um, but it was, yeah, no, we loved it, of course. We loved it because it turned out well at the end. Um, and of course, how, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race is 10 years old and we're 11. And I guess for the first few years, it didn't really have much of an impact or something. Mm -hmm. um, but so for the first few years, it was the same small number of drag queens and the, occasionally a new one would, young one would bubble up. Yeah. But that's all changed now. And I'm like, God, I, I, you know, I'm practically sick of drag myself. There's so many drag queens running around. Um, because RuPaul's Drag Race and everything. Um, so now it's it just even in Dublin. It's all, like when I, in 95, when I arrived, there was no drag queen in Dublin. There was no professional drag queen in Dublin. Apart from Mr. Pussy, who's a legend, um, um, Auntie Pussy. Um, but, he, but Pussy had always performed you know, for this straight cabaret scene. Hmm. So he, you know, he wasn't really what I was doing, and, you know, yeah. sort of the gay or gayness. Uh, and so I never, it never entered my head that it was a career. To me, it was just a fun thing that I was doing, and oh, look, people are paying me to get drunk. Mm. What twenty-something-year-old doesn't want that job? Um, so it's amazing to me now to see young, you know, drag queens suddenly appearing, and they think it's a perfectly legitimate career choice because they've seen me in Shirley Temple Bar and Beta, or whatever, and then all the ones that they see on the TV from RuPaul's Drag Race, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that is just such a. I mean, that's still hilarious to me, but it's become the mainstream almost. It so that has, and you know, and I. Everything is cyclical, and I'm old enough to remember the last time it would. Now it wasn't this kind of mainstream popular, but it bubbled up for a while. 
And it was actually also doing RuPaul when he had his first big hit in a supermodel. Mm. Um, and there was a brief period then where you'd go to like corporate events and there'd be drag queens handing out the canopies, you know. <laughs> but but not like now where it's just so mainstream. And yeah, and for a good number of years of RuPaul's Drag Race, I thought that's all great. Mm. Um, but at this stage, I, I wanted to die. And really? Start, yeah, because I think it's it's beginning to be a damaging thing. Tarnishing. The well, for starters, it only shows you a very limited idea of what drag is, and now there's billions and billions of these fans, and and if you go to a big drag thing that comes to the Olympia or something, mm. 50, 60 percent of the audience are teenage girls and that, and that's not drag's natural audience. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and. And, and these kind of people who only know from TV but don't go out to see the local trashy drag queen, they have a very limited idea of what drag is. They basically think it's a makeup artist's job, which it's not. You know, the look is the least important thing of, of you, know, a, you know, it's a live performance job. Mm. Um, and so it's skewing drag now because, because they only consider it, you know, right that's, that's... if it's the way that it is done on that TV show, which is one tiny sliver of right but mostly the reason i wanted to die now is because i think in the end it's going to make it harder for people like me because anything that is this popular this trendy this you know the kids are all about it it means that in another four or five years people are going to think it's over yeah. it'll be naff and uncool or whatever and then it'll go right back you know to the same kind of people who've always been doing it and it's going to be harder for them to make a living now yeah that's my fear about it the damned internet has changed everything <laughs> well like when i started i used to make my own shoes because where the hell could you have gotten shoes ladies shoes in my size then like getting a wig was a you know whatever a big ordeal like just so so different for everything and now the kids, they turn up their very first day in drag and they look amazing because they've learned everything from YouTube tutorials. Yeah. And then they go online and they order like fabulous drag wigs for nothing that's made for them in China and you know, shoes in their side. Like, I'm part of resents that. Because I'm like, you didn't put the work in. You know, like, you just learned it on a YouTube video. You know, but it's amazing, yeah, that part of it. You know, they turn up looking amazing, but then they don't. They have no experience, so mm. they don't know how to perform yet. Uh, for, for you personally, for, for, um, for Rory and then Panty Bliss, maybe separately, um, what's next? Um, I'm maybe busier than I've ever been, which is a weird thing to say. Well, it's just like the last 10 years have been so insane. But um, uh, I am, well, for example, I still do things like this screening tonight um, with you in. Um, I do a lot of other trips with um, the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs and Irish Aid because um, they do a lot of rights-based stuff and I go and I meet, um, you know, gay groups in countries where it's very, 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 very difficult and scary to be gay. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and other things, drawing attention to their work. Because um, Irish Aid, by the way, does incredible things with um, some of our tax money and I wish every Irish person could go on one of these trips. Unfortunately, that's not possible, so they um, mm. try and publicize what they do in other ways. Um, because you'd be so proud of what we do around the world. It's amazing. Um, and it's totally not political either, because the same people do it, no matter what government, you know, who's in government. Yeah. Um, and there, you, you go to like somewhere in Africa, and there's you know, babies with AIDS and a clinic and everything out under a tree. And then there's a solid woman from Cork, and she's you know, organizing everything. You know, it's amazing. 
Um, <laughs> um, so all that stuff um, still goes on when I'm um, available. Um, and then I do a lot of stuff around HIV. Um, obviously I've been living with HIV since all oh, 20 something years. Mm -hmm. um, so I do a lot of work around that. And then of course, then my real thing, I've, what I've always been doing is as an entertainer. So I still also have to do all of that. And, and that involves um, touring with the live shows and all of that. And, and actually I'm here in London a lot at the moment because um, the next big exciting project that we've been working on for a year and whatever is um, uh, we're uh, making a, a, a TV series with Sky here. Really? Oh. Yes, it's very exciting and fun and it's set in Dublin and drag queens and actually set in Panty Bar. Really? version. <laughs> when would we maybe expect to see that? Is that I don't know. Uh, well, hopefully, um, what, we're in, what, what month are we now? In September. In September yeah. So well, so hopefully next year's when the, all the actual um, action will happen. We've been basically writing it and um, all that and getting the finance. You know, there's been some really fun and silly things. But, yeah. You know, after Hollywood for the meetings and all that stuff. Oh. It's been really gas. Looking forward to seeing um, that. God, so am I. Like it's actually been eighteen months since the first meeting about it. But these know. things always take time, don't they? To kind they of do. Yeah. And there's so many people along the way because you know whatever production company and there's the TV people and the whatever and everybody has to have their opinion yeah they have to feel that they get you know I have a job I'm getting paid I better have an opinion and so, they, so are you worried about your intention being filtered then by no I've been, we've been other so people. lucky that we're making with playground entertainment um you know they make lots of things you see and watch TV and movies and they make theaters about Harry Potter and the Cursed Child and all that mm -hmm. um and the boss of that company he's English but he, He's based in uh, America mostly, and he was the head of HBO. Um, oh. He's Sir Colin Callender, and he's a, you know, a straight man married um, uh, to a, you know, a woman with Irish connections actually. A kids a lot, and he just came across Panty on, I don't, I think to YouTube videos, maybe speeches and that sort of thing, and he just thought this person is interesting. I'm gonna make a TV show then, like, and just he just called up my agent and. And like he's one of the most you know, powerful men in production. So, mm. and he's just been—they've—they've they've just been amazing. The company—they are totally—they get it. Um, usually, when these people appear, they want to do something with me. They—they they want to throw a feather bow at me and me be bitchy because that's what they think a drag queen is. Yeah. But no, they totally get what Pant is about and everything. And so they've been so great. And I don't know—it's if anything they've helped it be more, you know, Panty whatever. And I'm working with two other Irish writers that. Are, um, one I've worked with forever on all my live shows and everything. He directs them, and the other is um, John Butler, who's um, he made the Stag. He wrote and directed the Stag, um, uh, Handsome Devil, and he has a new one that's um, made out in Los Angeles, in a proper Hollywood movie, yeah. and that's just been at the festivals and got amazing reviews. Um, but he's also, you know, gay Dubliner. Mm. So, um, so since we all know each other's language and, and working together has been really fun. And yeah, we have a laugh doing it. And we just keep putting in people we know into it. We just change their name. Great. Sounds like a lot of fun. So. It is, yeah. I can't wait to actually get started then. Great. Well, good luck with the screening tonight. And thank you so much for, for coming in and having such a, a long chat with us. If and, I had uh, known you were from Cork, I might have hesitated. But I, didn't, I, I couldn't tell that from the email. I shouldn't have said anything. I shouldn't have said anything at all. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate not it. Not at all. Please pop back in again next year when the, when the show comes out. Probably not, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I admire no. the honesty. No, I, I would, I'd love to, yes. Correct. Thank, <laughs> thank you very much.
Thank you to Rory for joining me for that conversation and keep an eye out for that new TV show he mentioned will be coming out next year. Join me again next week when we will have two veterans of Irish music, Paul Brady and Andy Irvine. Until then, take care.